today on the Learn It, Use It podcast. So what have you learned, good and bad, about leading your team through change? Because the truth is, most people don't like change. It's hard. Yeah, um, it's great. And, you know, I'm I'm still learning on that all the time. One of my, uh, I would say one of my biggest weaknesses is sometimes I can outrun my team a little bit. And it's a flaw. You know, it doesn't do me or the company any good when I get so far up front. I'm trying to pull people along. It's not good for morale. It's not good for my stress. It's not good for the business. It's not good for anything. So I've, I have learned painstakingly to be more patient. It is so hard for me to do that. And it takes discipline for you to say, all right, I want to do this one thing really well. When my, everything in my DNA is, I want to do 50 things right now. And what I've learned is painfully the, the discipline it takes to let's do this really well and then let's let's then pause, let's do a postmortem, let's reflect, and let's move on to the next thing. Welcome to the Learn It Use It podcast presented by the Graduate Programs in Operations Management and Engineering Management in the College of Engineering at the University of Arkansas. In our programs, we stand by Learn It Today, Use It Tomorrow. Today's workforce is changing rapidly, and all fields require adapting to new environments, which means you need new credentials quickly to improve your current performance. Our graduate programs and certificates apply to all industries, so you are competitive in today's workforce. Your host, Dr. Richard Hamm, is the Associate Director of the Master of Science in Operations Management and Master of Science in Engineering Management. Hamm teaches courses in leadership, cybersecurity, global competition, Homeland Security, Resilient Design, and Unmanned Aircraft Systems. In Season 2, Episode 1 of the Learn It, Use It podcast, Dr. Ham is joined by Jesse Core, Chief Executive Officer of Core Brewing Company in Springdale, Arkansas, to discuss how operations management, entrepreneurship, leadership, company culture, and hard work has brought success. All right, welcome today for, I think, what is going to be one of my top favorite podcasts that we've done. Uh, because today we're going to explain why it's in, important for operations managers, engineering managers in some case, to understand beer. And who couldn't love talking about uh, beer, especially if it's good beer. <laughs> but with me today, I have Jesse Core, who is a CEO, founder, uh, chief cook and bottle washer, everything <laughs> of right. Core Brewery. But he, uh, he's got a great story. We've got to be good friends and uh, I've spent a little time out at the brewery, both uh, working and playing and just a, a great operation and a great story. So just thank you. Oh, that's no, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time because I know you're busy. Uh, and, you know, it, it's I think most people would be surprised, you know, how much it takes oh, to yeah. run a brewery. So with that in mind, tell us, tell us some about yourself and tell us the uh, after that, the journey of Core Brewery, sure. different craft beers. Now, everybody knows Scarlet Letter. If they don't, they must be uh, sleeping under a rock. <laughs> uh, so t- tell us both about uh, your, yourself and the journey. Yeah, sure. Um, again, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Uh, I love the uh, uh, one. Again, thank you for all your, your help you've done at the brewery. And it's just it's cool to partner with uh, you and U of A on many of these initiatives. It's a lot of fun. So uh, I started brewing back in 1992. Um, I was a baseball player at what, what is was West Art, now UAFS. And just like typical freshmen, I was uh, out drinking cheap beer and, and 
you know, and hanging out with my friends at night. And I, I didn't frequent my uh, microbiology class as regularly as I should have. <laughs> but I, I, had a, I had a very creative professor who pulled me aside and says, Jesse, just get your butt to class and I'll teach you how to make beer. Now we learn to make yogurt and sauerkraut. I don't know how to make any of that. But it stuck with me. It's a lot of fun. Making beer is a lot of fun because it's equal parts science and equal parts art. And so then I went to uh, start my career in software development, moved to Denver for a few years, moved to San Diego for seven years where I really developed a love for it. But I love Northwest Arkansas. So after that decade, I came back home um, and we had a real shortage of uh, craft beer. I mean, I was living in San Diego, so it was all craft beer. We came out here, it was just nine. So I talked to my wife and said, hey, I got a great idea. Let's give up our, you know, our 401k. Let's give up our vacations and security and get an entrepreneurial, uh, jump into entrepreneurial world. And uh, it has been the hardest and the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, and uh, it's just been a heck of a journey. We have some we have ways to go, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, and, and enjoying some success. You know, oh. I mean, that's how I mean, typically if you prepare yourself and, uh, and work hard, most of the time that works out. Yeah, I would say, you know, the adage that it takes 10 years to become an overnight success, that is absolutely true in the world of uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, there are those that are um, achieve much success much faster and good for those guys. Uh, but I do tell when I teach at uh, U of A, my students is make sure that you're ready to be committed for uh, a lot of work in the, the long haul. Well, and um, the thing also, I think everybody has some kind of a uh, an idea how that happens. But in your case, you're working on a doctorate now, and you know it's not it's not like it's uh, you know uh, something that you just kind of pick up on the side. You have actually had to spend some time preparing. Oh yeah. Learning things like, you know, how should I, when should I make a capital improvement? When is it not? And, and those sorts of things. So, have you been surprised about how much of that was involved in the business? Well, one thing I'm really proud of is we've done a lot of firsts in Arkansas, which is pretty cool. I mean, my kids are eight generations, our, our Kansas. I'm very proud to be from the state. And when we came here, we did a lot of firsts. And that's probably something I learned the most was what seemed intuitive to me. And, California or Colorado, like we bought a canning line first. Well, the market wasn't ready for that here. So the canning line just sat there idle. We had to go out and buy bottling machines until the market caught up. And then now we, you know, bottles are in museums at this point. So I have learned and I have the scars to prove it a lot over this decade of doing things that just have not been done in the state yet. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a lot of fun. But at this point, we're, uh, we feel like we found a good stride. Uh, we feel like we're not moving, we're not outpacing the market. We feel like we have a nice wind at our back and really we're just focused on executing our plan that we have right now. And so you mentioned one of the things, you know, in our program in OM, whether it's formal or not, it's certainly for sometimes for startups, one of those things is uh, you know, having an actual plan, a strategic plan, you know, your mission and vision statement. When you, you know who you are, but you also know who you want to be. So, how did that process work? Is it was it you on a, you know, on a napkin? Was it? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. I mean, one as you know, those the mission and vision statements are living creatures, and they evolve. If you would ask me 
five years ago, if we'd be producing hard beverages like seltzer and RTDs, I'd be like, what the heck are those? You know, I didn't, I was, I was writing software. I left writing software so I could be a brewer because I wanted to make beer. Right. And now it's, you know, a fraction of our business compared to the other side. Um, so, um, yeah, I was not expecting that. So our mission and vision statements have to evolve. Um, and I think it's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. Uh, where a lot of big established companies don't really have that luxury, is we are able to be nimble. Um, we're able to jump onto new market trends quickly, uh, where it's a harder decision process when you're in a really established company. And that's, you know, I would I tell people I've made every mistake seemingly twice at this point. But one thing that we are pretty good at is innovation and recognizing new trends and and and, and getting active in that. Well, and that agility is kind of the key, right? 100%. I mean, if you're not moving, you're dying kind yeah. of thinking in this this business, I think it is for sure. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, I kind of said jokingly, but actually, you know, a lot of people have that idea. It's like, well, you're, you know, you're making it in bathtubs or uh, buckets or whatever that it is, and they think it's all fun and games. And, and having been to the brewery, uh, you do make sure employees enjoy what they're doing and there's some things that you do there but uh it looks a lot like traditional manufacturing operations management um problems to me i look on the line with the canning i look you know the manual processes at the end it looks a lot like uh, om industrial engineering things that you're dealing with every day mm -hmm. to try to figure out what's, you know, what's the right process, step, you know, how does it work all the time that you're dealing with. I've got some pretty amazing technology, canning technology, but there'll be something happen with it that you need to figure out. So talk about how do you, how do you walk through that? If you're not a traditionally trained in that. Right, right. Um, and how do you, how do you, how do you get there? Um, one, it's a lot more expensive than, I mean, the, the CapEx is, is significant in any sort of food manufacturing and beer is food and you know in the early days i had you know plenty of people coming to me looking for jobs and everything and yeah i want to make beer <laughs> you know and in their minds you know it's swinging in a hammock sipping beer but it is really plant work and um, those operational efficiencies are critical to success in such a tight margin competitive business um one thing, for example, a recent success story we had was, um, I mean, it's great that we've expanded with Sam's Club and Walmart and different retailers, but that also introduces new challenges. We have to get product out the door faster. Our current canning line does about 260 cans per minute, which is, it's material in the craft world. That's a lot for craft. But one of the problems we had is we have external fermenters that hold 3,000 gallons, just for my sake. And we have to be able to cool that from 74 or whatever room temperature is, uh, ambient temperature down to below 34 degrees so it absorbs carbon dioxide. What happened was through a relationship with Dr. Osborne and the U of A over years, and Scott's a good friend, he came up and invented this amazing technology to where he's able to rapidly carbonate these vessels outside that historically took us three to four days and, and a half a day. So these are the kinds of entrepreneurial efficiencies that you have to be willing to invest in, because essentially what it is, he bought five more tanks for us. You know, he increased, right. he he applied a five x multiple to our tanks outside, and now we're able to do a better job of keeping up with demand. 
So when you're an entrepreneur, and particularly in a high capex business like beverage, where everything's stainless, uh, you need to look at those ways you can really drive those operational efficiencies uh, and reduce waste. Which sounds a lot like a lane problem. Sounds a lot like you know trying to reduce variability and so your product's the same every time you reduce waste and variability. It's a challenge. I mean, you know, one of the beauties of craft is there is that uh, you do have some leeway in terms of your product. I mean, they love kind of the, the craft nature of it. Um, but uh, we we have to focus on making sure we produce a very high quality and repeatable product. Our goal has been simple. If we produce it in Northwest Arkansas, uh, we want when uh, people are drinking Scarlet Letter or Members Mark in Las Vegas or Phoenix, it's the same product. And that takes that takes uh, it takes some skill and, and equipment to make sure that it's uh, repeatable, and that's a challenge. Right. Well, I can imagine, especially when you're talking. In essence, it is a food, mm-hmm. so there's variability with that. Um, if if I look at all of those pieces, so I, I you know, we spent enough time. There's challenges. There's supply chain challenges, and okay. something very unique in uh, is that you're not just you know. Most people look at their supply chain and in manufacturing and they're looking what's coming in my factory, what's going out of my factory. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand retail, what's happening on shelves and all of that, but put all of that together, yeah. which is a lot different uh, yeah. than, than other see. What of the pieces in supply chain do you see as a challenge? You know, you, everything, the bullwhip effect or, or, you know, supply starvation, though, but what's the big challenge that you, you find yourself facing over and over? Uh, all of the above. And I, you know, being a small business, an entrepreneur, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a CFO, a COO, a CIO, a CTO. I just don't have it available. So I work closely with my directors and we have to manage these things because there's one thing that's guaranteed to be scarce in small business, it's cash. And so it would be cash and space. And at this point, our 20,000-foot facility is packed wall-to-wall. So we're now, we've are now we now extended. Now we have an off-site storage location, which you have to go through various regulatory obstacles to even be able to store finished goods off-site. Um, I would say um, the supply chain challenges we have are, one, making sure that uh, we do not overextend ourselves and go long on inventory, because now you start looking at cash shortages which is critical. So we have to play that very fine game of um, buying just enough that you need to fulfill demand without driving that scarcity. And then all of a sudden, and hey, we miss sometimes. We miss. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we missed. We had a we had a particular component of uh, Scarlet Letter that was supposed to be in. It was three days late for whatever reason. Impacts our business. We missed three days of manufacturing. And then you start factoring all the costs that we're missing, the opportunity costs, the labor costs, the energy costs. It's significant. Um, but we're getting pretty good at that. We're getting much better at our, at our demand forecasting and our supply. But um, we have to be very, very careful uh, to make sure that we do not run out, but at the same time do not go long. So it is a very tough challenge that we're, um, we continue to be better at every, every year. I wonder what the future will hold for some of that because we're, you know, we're struggling in academe and uh, not just us, but others about, you know, what kind of things, what kind of 
advances in forecasting and others AI will help us do. Um, and you know, it's like anything else. If it's if you used it correctly, you put the inputs and constraints in correctly, it should do pretty good. But if, when you look at the future, not just you know, day after tomorrow. Where do you think? Where do you think some advancements can be made, or robotics, or what technology? What do you think? Well, AI is super interesting. Uh, you know, we're just not scratching the surface of that, uh, and then you're, you're going to find it more mainstream. And I mean, I'm I'm incorporating that in some of my work in my dissertation with shell space elasticity and flow average. Uh, so that is going to continue to evolve um, from a technological standpoint. Um, it's expensive for small breweries to do. I mean, when I think about something really cool is when uh, my good friend Rich brings a drone, flies it at the top of one of our tanks to evaluate whether or not we have a leak in a tank. That, to me, I think that is extremely cool and very applicable to to small business. Um, so It's fun, too. It's, it's just, I mean, I'm kind of a nerd. You know, I mean, I, I just like, well, you know, I have brewers out there running around, not doing what they're supposed to because they don't want to watch the drone <laughs> fly around the tanks. <laughs> so it's, it, that's really cool. And the packaging and not to be specific to the brewery, the packaging is, uh, the, the robotics around the packaging is really important. It's still very cost prohibitive because um, when you start factoring in, can I hire this number of employees versus a more of a robotic uh, it's just it's hard for us at this point. However, we're getting better. It is becoming more uh, more cost effective, of course. Well, and and that is some of the struggle with the robotics. About you know some of that is people can be displaced, but you know hopefully it, it helps you scale up. When you scale up, there's other positions out there people can move into if they're skilled. What skills do you think? And I would ask this one selfishly because we're always looking. What skills when you're looking for things? If you had the magic wand and said, U of A, here's the skills that if you know you would get people, that's who I'm looking for, and that's what's going to help this industry scale. Well, this may not be the answer you'd be expecting, but it's probably a little more. I look for a skill set of somebody that gets things done. That is the skill set that I look for. Uh, can't remember which president, but he had a great article, a great presentation talking about even at the highest level of president, he, people would come to him and with an amazing ability to describe the problem down to the nth degree. But very, very, very few people say, "Let me take care of that. I got that," and then we'll figure out and get it done. If I had a magic wand, I'd have a team full of those. The people that I'm like. They just come to me with solutions. They thought about it, reflected, and they and they came they came to me with a solution. That is that is that's challenging. Also, um, applied experiences are really important. Um, people that can hit the ground running, because in my world, you know, we don't have we, we don't have the luxury of say a big company that has a learning center. We don't. When you get into our business, it's we're we're jumping in the deep end and we're getting really busy and that takes a certain kind of personality as well well so you said you know it's that quote from what you said uh, that you'll hear people often say in fact some people very successful people say you know higher character trained skills and that's 100%. kind of it. um because you know many will tell you if you hire the right character i can train them to do anything they 
They'll take accountability for what they didn't do right, and they'll learn from it and they'll move on That's right. uh, instead of blaming someone else. Um, it's vital, Rich. It really is, man. I, you know, I think the, one, the, the learning that I've done over the last couple decades is, and we've heard the saying before, it's all about the people. And when we talk about right, robotics and advancements in technology, I don't look at it as displacing people. I look at it as utilizing our, our people, our, we call them family in our group. Our turnover is very low in our business because we really do care about each other and treat each other like family. Rather than, for example, working on a, not to get into details, but a can twist technology that will help speed up our uh, process. Right now we have to have somebody kind of babysitting them. Well, after we invest in this, this product, this, advancement, this individual, I'm going to be able to utilize this individual in different areas to provide more value for the company. So I don't look at it as displacing. I'm sure there, there is displacement out there. I mean, I'm, not, I'm certainly aware of that, but my, I, I need guys to, guys and girls to be um, utilized better and use technology to uh, automate these processes. So. Well, so that gives kind of a, a segue into the things you want leadership-wise. Um, unfortunately, it's like this, you know, quote on evaluation I always tell people for years is, uh, you, know, you might look at me when I was young and say, he doesn't make the same mistake twice, although I do, he doesn't make the same mistake twice, <clears throat> but he's made all of them once. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the, you know, understanding that and working with folks when the leadership is. So I've been there, and I've seen the camaraderie of your uh, folks on the line and that relationship. What have you learned about that? Because there's a lot, you know, there's value in taking a leadership course to start and evaluate yourself, but then you learn those things along the way. What have you learned about how to, how to lead your team and to get them on the same page? I would say probably the best leader that I've ever, when I worked at Tyson, uh, Donnie Smith was the CEO of that company. He uh, he would post things out like engage the fruit. He really recognized that the heart and soul of the company was based on those on the line. Those That is where the money is made. Um, the administrative offices, the sales, the whatevers, the money, they need to recognize that the money is made on the line. And so what I like to do is I have a desk that, and I, and they don't see me as a big brother down there oversight because I've, I've earned their respect that I'll get in, I'll work on the lines with them. Nothing's below me. I'll be the first to take out the trash. I'll be the first to, to pack boxes. I don't, I think that form of leadership is dead. Uh, and if not, it should be. If you're not willing to get in there and get dirty with your team and show them that, that you lead from the middle of the pack, um, then you need to update your leadership style, in my opinion. Because in this world, the autocratic form of leadership just it just doesn't resonate with the people that I work with. Well, and more, um, younger, the current generation's company, mm -hmm. it really doesn't resonate with them. That's oh. not been their experience, and it's not their expectation. So right. have you had to make a you know adapt to that? Because you have you have some. You have some younger folks. Sure. And I'd say what I've probably, two of my uh, um, definitely more important employees or higher up employees started off as interns in my company and they were young. So they got to grow up and I got to mentor them up to the point the positions are at now. Um, I learn as much from them as they learn from me. Uh, and I really lean upon their expertise. 
But I think it is critical as a part of our company culture. Right? Today, for example, we have sales reps, new sales reps, in packaging line-filling boxes. It's important. If they don't, if they don't do that, we're not going to have the cohesive type of family that we want that is really um, uh, firing on all cylinders. They have to be able to understand uh, what what the um, the production team is doing in order to um, be the type of employees and leaders that I want in the company. Or otherwise, they promise they're writing checks you can't cash That's if right. they don't. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And it, it, it does a lot for culture. Uh, when you're when you're down there filling boxes or working them, it's hard, man. I would encourage anybody to come visit me at the brewery. Um, send me an email, jesse at corbeer.com. I'm easy to find. Come see me. Um, and it's really hard work. Um, you know, people think if you have this misconception of, of, of brewing, well, brewers will in the summertime, which is the busiest time of the year, if you look at the seasonality, they're in there boiling massive vats of, of liquid. It's not like they're running, not like we're running the AC in there, you know? So they're just in there hot. Um, and the same in the packaging line, they're going, they're going, they're going as fast as they can. So from my end, my anybody who wants to move up in my organization has to pay their dues down in production. Well, I think there's, I think we're seeing that more and more. I've mentioned to you a couple of people we've had on the podcast that talk, said that very thing. You know, if you want to be an engineer here, uh, then you got to work on the line. That's right. That's and so they work on the line for a while and then do engineering and they kind of understand what they're signing people up to. Um, you identify the, the type of people. Culture is so important. And uh, I think when culture is not important, it's everything in your, in your business. Uh, so you'll learn a lot about people when you, when you put them in situations that maybe they're not super comfortable. I think that's a Jack Walsh quote, is it? <laughs> He's pretty smart. Guy. Yeah, he was pretty smart. He made a lot of money, but uh, uh, but so the I guess the next along one thing that goes with that is so uh, everybody had COVID challenges. Um, I don't know anybody that didn't have COVID COVID challenges. How did you work your way through that? Well, first off, how did it affect you, and then how did you work your way through it? Well, COVID was very good for our business, and we're one of the unique ones. Um, and um, at one point, not to not to take three hours talking about this one topic, at one point we had 10 pubs in the state of Arkansas. That was kind of our business model at that point was if everybody was drinking it, they would try it, they'd get to know us, brand recognition. But it had a bit of an adverse effect. You know, it took away some of that, um, you know, cores everywhere. You know, it's not, it, it took away kind of the premiumness of the brand, which is so important for craft. Not only that, but there's so many issues that are inherent with basically owning bars across state that you rarely visit. So to make a long story short, you know, I'm like, man, this is, I hate this. This is no fun. This is terrible. And my wife came to me who's been with me on this crazy journey since day one. It's like, close them. And it was a terrible experience. And when you divest out of a, a significant strategic move, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. You're just teetering on going out of business the whole time. And it's so much stress and everybody's upset. It turned out to be one of the best moves we've ever made. Because six months later, COVID hit. And then we were already divested out of it. 
So we looked like we were clairvoyant until we got out of this thing right before COVID. Better be lucky to be good sometimes. Uh, that was that was something that we looked back and go, wow. We Missed got, the bullet on that. Oh, man. And, uh, and then it really, then at that point, we got to f- show what our real strength was, which is uh, product development, distribution, manufacturing. And when everybody went home, they were buying stuff at stores. They weren't going out. So when on-premise sales just collapsed for the majority of the industry, making as much as we can produce because people are taking it home. And that was really kind of the launch of Scarlet Letter as well. So it all came together at that point. Oh, really? Pandemic helped to to, to do it. Really? Mm -hmm. Well, so it's interesting uh, because what you just said is, I guess, a great example of others that you see where they will... They'll do a SWOT analysis, and you'll see you can see these great companies that that, that go out of business. They do a SWOT analysis, and then they spend all their time trying to work on the W. <laughs> and yeah. you, you know, and every you know Jack Welch, you know, they'd say, "Stop worrying." You know, don't worry about your W. I mean, unless it's a competitive issue, then deal with it. But focus on your strength, right? One hundred percent, man. And 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 don't be afraid to say. Uh, we're just not good at this. This is not ours, our deal. And so we need to get back to our core. Absolutely. No yeah, pun intended. I, I like that. <laughs> get back yeah. to our core. Um, well, with that, so what that means, and one of the classes we have in OPIM is leading change. So, you I mean, just in a few minutes here, you're talking about a lot of change. Kind of as Scarlet Letter came up, and then as you you know, automated more things. So what have you learned, good and bad, about leading your team through change? Because the truth is, most people don't like change. It's hard. Yeah, yeah um, it's great. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm still learning on that all the time. One of my, uh, I would say one of my biggest weaknesses is I, sometimes I can outrun my team a little bit. And it's a flaw. You know, it doesn't do me or the company any good when I get so far up front. I'm trying to pull people along. It's not good for morale. It's not good for my stress. It's not good for the business. It's not good for anything. So I've, I have learned painstakingly to be more patient. It is so hard for me to do that. And it takes discipline for you to say, all right, I want to do this one thing really well. When my, everything in my DNA is, I want to do 50 things right now. And what I've learned is painfully the, the discipline it takes to let's do this really well and then let's let's then pause, let's do a postmortem, let's reflect, and let's move on to the next thing. We're seeing that in our Scarlet Letter cocktails that's coming out. Uh, we're releasing a vodka based line of Scarlet Letter Extension. Ooh, when's that coming? October. Oh. And it's and one thing, this is a this is a a, a case study on before we actually released a thing called Twenty Fifth State Cocktails that was in Walmart, did terribly. It was awful. I was, you know, I, I thought I was really cute. And Twenty Fifth State Cocktails, nobody knows what the Twenty Fifth State is. You know, even people of Arkansas. <laughs> and so our message was poor. Uh, the liquid was, it was really good. But our supply chain issues was we weren't able to source some of the materials. So there would be delays. It got it became expensive. So we killed that, and then we said, all right, we're going to pause on that. Let's get Scarlet Letter back to where we need it to be, and then let's release the Scarlet Letter cocktails that can take advantage of the brand equity that Scarlet Letter has. 
and then roll it into this new category, which would be ready to drink cocktails. And we're going to like, well, how many flavors do you want to start off with one? And I'm like, one. One, <laughs> one really good. <laughs> and, and it's really good. I'm very proud. I think people are going to like it because I'm told. Well, I'm about to come out there and try that. So that <laughs> so the the you just brought up something I think that reinforces what you said earlier. So, but but the very thing that forces you to do that that strength, which is agility. I mean, sometimes you have to say this this didn't work, and let's just pull back. And I see some of these international and, and uh, national brewers that are very big, and it's like. Man, once they're in, it's like it doesn't matter how bad it is; they're just stuck. they're going to ride it into the ground. Oh, and so, but but you're saying, hey, part of the success is recognizing when it's not good. Man, one of the things, one of the breweries that kind of got me started was Anchor Brewing Company out of San Francisco. I remember my brother Andy Cor was a, he's like, try this, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It's America's oldest brewery. Anchor Steam, Anchor IPA, all of Anchor Liberty, all these amazing beers. That brewery just went out of business after it's like 120 years old. I look at it, and I'm sure there's a million reasons why, but it really, what I've been looking at outside is it really didn't evolve. It was still producing the same bottles, and I don't know their, 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 their inner workings, but in this space, in today's environment, if you're not innovating, you're dead meat. It's just a matter of time. And so... There is that fine line between where my DNA is try a million things, you know, to to innovate, but also do so with some discipline and and do that thing really well and then move on to the next step. So um, must be innovative. Yeah, you you've really hit on something there and some things that, you know, I, I tell you a relatively short story, but the so I had. Uh, my wife's family, some folks from Idaho, great, great people. And one of them that came to visit us sometime several years ago, great big guy, drove a truck, drove his truck to our house. I mean, literally unhitched and came to us, his 18 wheeler. Mm -hmm. And um, big, like 275, maybe even 300, mm -hmm. six, six, four. And uh, he came and I'd gone to, I bought some beer, had it ready for him and uh he came in and this is at the very beginning of this kind of craze and i said what would you like he said will you have any wine coolers <laughs> <laughs> that's great so but i mean the point of it is i never would have anticipated that <laughs> but you know clearly those just came out and he liked them and so you know uncharacteristic but you have to see that a lot Oh, yeah. That uh, are you surprised how the market changes? Well, I thought you know you, you when you think about identifying your demographic, you know it's tough. You know people assume well, seltzer equals uh, a certain demographic, certain age, certain gender. Well, not really. I mean, you know, I walked into uh, when I started seeing the the, the broad appeal of uh, Scarlet Letters when I went into uh, Pablo Dixon Street, and there was six dudes around a pool table drinking Scarlet Letter. So I mean, I. We have to be careful not to limit our market by by unless we really have a better understanding of what that demographic is. So uh, it is a little surprising that a six six three hundred pound guy would go for a wine cooler, <laughs> but it does it, it does teach you a lesson. It, it does. I mean, you you can't uh, you can't pigeonhole people in your market, right? That's so right. Uh, some of that you just have to do what you're doing. Keep 
keep your mind open. Yeah, learn from experience. Right. You learn from experience. I, that is my, I mean, sure, we have Nielsen data, we have the syndicated data, we have the distributor data, but the experience is really things that really shaped, shaped my decisions on a daily yeah. basis. And you have to be agile. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're a mo a big barge, you know it's le it's less concerning. But if you're trying to grow your business, it's imperative. I mean, I don't. I just. I mean, if we just stuck with beer, we said we're only going to do beer. That's it. And we're going to do this style of beer. We'd be dead. We'd be out of business. Um, so we have to be able to keep an eye out for new trends. Um, otherwise, you're just going to stagnate. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, every few years we see that change that's happening with the, you know, it, it, some of it generational, some of it's not. It's just culture that changes, right? So, um, so one of the things that when we talked about the mission and vision statement, mm -hmm. and you you said something that was really true that they're evolving mm -hmm. so you know i wouldn't ask you to share proprietary or anything no. but what what do you think your vision statement is now i mean if you were going to paraphrase where it's going where do you think you're going well I, you know i think my mindset has changed over the last 10 years from you know growing up in software particularly during my career was during the dot-com boom Business were very transactional. It was like we're gonna ramp it up, sell it, ramp it up, sell it, you know. And that was, and then you go through your MBA program, ramp it up, sell it, you know. That has changed a little bit to me. I mean, now I just turned fifty, uh, you know. And one thing that I've learned is I really, you know, I was talking to my wife one day, and she's like, Jesse, if you sold this business transactional, what would you do? And I'm like, well, I have a pretty sweet job right now, and I really like the people I work with. So my my personal vision statement is to provide homes for my my team. You know, I want them to have homes and grow and succeed uh, to the best of my ability. And then um, I would say, and it's interesting because we are re re rewriting our our mission statement now, and I'm having the team help me develop it. Because one thing I teach my classes at, in, uh, in New Venture Development is. Any business that you're in, no matter what, it should all be founded on being an empathetic organization. If you're not, if you're not viewing it from the lens of being empathetic, uh, in my opinion, it's it's a mistake. And so, what we're doing is rewriting our vision statements to really think about how do we take care of our people, how do we take care of our customers, how do we support one another, how do we help each other aside from just being in a business setting or work setting. And uh, so, when I uh, when I get it done, I'll make sure I send it to your way. Well, I, I, I just, it, it's clear to me, and it is, you, you, uh, there's a lot of, and actually, uh, that's part of agility, right? Because very large organizations, what you'll see is, you know, they have an offsite every five years mm -hmm. to look at the mission and vision statement. Uh, and then somebody, you know, once a year might say, oh, you know, maybe something changed, but really, they're not very agile changing it. I mean, people look at it. You know, and they're not impactful in a lot of no. places. And so one of the first questions, because I, I teach the importance, and you know, Jack Welch did the same thing. He was very strong in the, in the mission and vision statements. They can't be BS. They actually have to mean something. And so I, in my class, several of them have jobs, in big, where they're interns in big companies. And I'm like, all right, what's the mission statement or vision statement? Nobody knows. 
Right. Nobody knows. So from a relevancy standpoint, what does it matter? If you spend money developing something that nobody remembers. So um, that's something we're trying to make with ours is actually make it. And that's why it's hard. A mission and vision statement shouldn't be something chat GPT whips out for you. It really has to encompasses, you know, the uh, the the culture and the lifeblood of your of your of your company. And everybody should know it because that's your battle cry. That's that's your foundational tool to develop. So that's why we're slow on developing it. Um, and that's why it's important to have so many people involved. Well, I I had the opportunity many years ago to see Jack Welsh speak and I, he said something that was kind of impactful he talked about in his office he had and you know it wasn't labeled mission and vision statement although he he talks in formal terms too but you know he he said he always had something said who we are and who we want to be that's what they are right in his office and people looked at it and it meant something he said and we changed it you know if it changed so i think yeah, you're you're saying you're hitting on exactly what some of these very successful people have done. Yeah, and I, it's not me sending out an email to the team going, "Hey guys, this is our new mission and vision." I want them to own it. So, uh, uh, I think even though we haven't really crystallized what it is, I think it's in, I think it's important to the team that they're part of the process. It's, I think it's as important as the mission and vision statement. The fact that the team has ownership in what what our mission and vision really is. Well, uh, what a great point because you, you know, and also sometimes what, and I'd like to get your thought on it, but sometimes what the, uh, an organization or leaders will miss in the mission statement is they never say, they never identify who they aren't. Hmm. So yeah. they'll say we're this, but then when you look at what they're doing, they're like, well, well most of what you're doing is not that. It's this. So. Yeah. Do you, you find yourself having to double check yourself on that? I think our, the hardest thing is we, you know, we have a lot of things. Uh, that, you know, uh, finding conciseness is difficult to be concise and something that's memorable. You know, it's hard to write a really good one. It really is. Uh, and I wish I had a good answer for it because I, I don't. It's hard to how do you encapsulate what your what the what the culture of your team is and what you want to be. So, um, without it being ten pages long. I mean, yeah, without it, yeah, exactly, without it being. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think I'll, I'll share it with you when we get when we get to a point that we all feel good about it. We'll probably have a few beers in the process. And sure. It helps with you know stimulate some creativity. Well, it's interesting uh, because I've been there when we, uh, you know, didn't have anything to drink before we flew, but I flew, and after the mission was over. <laughs> Had a beer. We talked about some of these concepts, but your your team, from people, uh, you know, at, at all levels of the team would come there and share ideas, or you know, I, you know, there's little things you notice. Mm -hmm. I notice your team comes up to you, and one of them saying, "Hey, I saw this today." You know, what's the value in that? In other words, you know, you work hard, but you play together too, or you have those kind of can yeah, you talk to that and leadership value of that. Sure, sure. Um, well, one, I, I truly don't. I mean, down to my DNA, I don't want to sound disingenuous. I don't feel like I'm better than the people that are uh, working in any part of my company. Um, and I and people that truly know me know that's a fact. Um, I really, uh, I want to make sure when I'm talking to them that I understand what's going on with them personally. If they want to talk about it, um, I'll joke with them. Um, 
It's a good thing that we don't have a, you know, a massive HR department. You know? <laughs> you know? uh, can you delete that? You know, that part? Okay. I'm in charge of HR. But I think they, the people on my team know that they can come to me with anything. And uh, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to beat them up. Um, and I think um, I've, I've earned that over the years. But they also understand the expectations. And um, and I don't have to discipline them because they already they feel bad if they don't, if they're letting the team down. And that's the culture you want. We have a, a stand-up meeting every day where I go in front of the team. We look at the schedule for today, and I'm like, guys, it takes five minutes. This is what we're doing today. Do you guys need anything from me? Um, and it's usually a couple minutes later, and we all get to work. If somebody rolls in late or something, you can just see that they're bummed out that they're you know, they don't want to let the team down, and that's the culture we want. And uh, it's working. You know, it's it's working. And um, I just try to help. You know, uh, people um, um, be happy and have a uh, have a a good sense of purpose in what they're doing every day. So, do you actually call it a stand up? Mm -hmm. Does everybody stand up? Mm -hmm. So, so you know, military background. That's how I grew up. We did it forever. We stood. You'd stand, literally stood, mm -hmm. in front of the board. There was an activity board, whether it was maintenance or the rest of it. And five, ten. If it went to fifteen minutes, somebody problems. probably had a problem. <laughs> problems. Yeah. But just that uh, connection at the beginning of the day. Uh, you know, I had a great mentor that said said You know, if you're really successful. You'll spend five minutes at the beginning of the day figuring out what you're going to get done that day. Well, this was the group spending five minutes saying, this is what we're going to get done today. And kind of defining what success would look like for that day. Mm -hmm. um, so I it's love a, that. It's a great point, Rich. Yeah. I mean, what I try to tell the team is get your work done and go home and don't think about work anymore. Just go home. So last week was a really uh, kind of a little bit of a breakthrough. We have our stand-ups at 8.30 sharp. By the time I got there and I was there for the 8.30, everybody was already running. They already basically had a schedule done. We didn't need to have my stand-ups walking around say, uh, walk around and say, good job. You know, the last thing I want to do is have a meeting to interrupt their productivity. Right. So that to me was a really good feeling that they amongst themselves saw the plan, didn't need to wait until the 8.30 stand-up, and they just got to work and knocked it out. That, and then they leave and they feel successful. Ultimately, everybody just wants to feel successful. And so um, they, the morale is very, is very high right now, which is, and we're doing two and a half X what we did last year. So, uh, and, and learning, uh, uh, gaining a lot of new muscles. Um, so uh, that was a cool experience. Well, and that, that just, boy, we could, we could do two podcasts just on the leadership piece and how you bring that together. But one of the things uh, that that I also noticed when I was there was that you actually can see folks on the line enjoying their set. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's hot. It's hot. It's tedious. It's hard hot. work. And some of the machines are loud, but they're uh, interacting, talking to each other, getting the work done. But the culture is that they're, they like it. They don't, they're, they're doing things that have never been done in the state. And I keep part of what I have to do. I think any leadership has to do uh, is disseminate information to wins. Uh, don't assume that they, because they're they're lower in the organizational chart, that they won't understand. They want to know big picture stuff too. 
they want to know the big wins as well. And when I'm like, guys, do you realize that we're we're producing more that's ever been done in the state? Do you realize that we're more states than any craft beverage company the states have ever produced? Do you realize that you guys did 250 barrels in one day? That hasn't been done before. You know, and they love that. And that is that recognition and that sense of pride is really what drives this group. It's interesting, no matter how many times, no matter how many times I've heard it, no, no matter how many times I've seen the research, uh, the truth is when people have retention problems, pay can, is a consideration. Mm -hmm. People have to feed their families. Sure. But it's not the number one. No, it's not. People, people stay in a job where they might be able to go somewhere else and make a little bit more money, but they're happier. Their quality of life, they feel like, is more so. It's just an important thing. I have one of my critical, critical employees. His name is Ivan. Um, and Ivan has a degree in psychology from U of A. He's, he could go do something else. But he works on the packaging line. It's such a critical piece um, because he, he loves it. And he loves being a part of this team. And he recognizes his, his work and how important he is to the company. And... Um, he has this amazing ability that if he's done with something, he, he is not the type of guy that stays idle. He will go find some other person to help. And I, I just look around, I just feel a lot of pride by having someone like that in my organization that could absolutely, he could absolutely go work somewhere else and make more money. But I hopefully, you know, I'm sure he does. He recognizes how important he is to the family. Yeah, it's, it's, it's key. Well, let me kind of shift a little bit towards the, because it's going to be different, the discussion on engineering management. And the OM pieces, most people that are operations management, especially in traditional uh, IE or OM, uh, industrial engineering or operations management and manufacturing, they kind of, they immediately see this. But one thing, engineering management, that's traditionally more technology, aerospace is where everybody talks about it, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, you're designing your airplanes and R&D. But there has to be, elements of that uh, to figure out, all right, well, on paper, this looked like it would be really good, but we tried it and it wasn't that good. So it has to be some things where you transition, like Scarlet Letter, when you designed, did that. Talk a little bit about that, about what, what it takes to do that kind of test and evaluation piece to bring it into the manufacturing part sure. of the um, my background in software, one thing I learned from that is simple is good. You know, if there's less moving parts, that's great. Um, so we've done a good job of eliminating, um, uh, we'll call it over-engineering in our, in our facility and streamlining operations. That is one area and making it simpler, easier to maintain. Most parts are breaking, easier to do the preventative maintenance on it. So streamlining that is a very important part of our business. And also working with really smart people. Um, you know, again, I mentioned Dr. Osborne. Scott is, uh, that partnership with him and the university uh, brings us some really smart people that help us discover issues with our gas flow, our carbonation strategies, um, uh, you know, waste water, uh, and all these engineering challenges that have material value to the practitioner, the entrepreneur. That is what I really look for is, you know, I want to spend the time, I want to invest in it, but it has to make sense for the business. Um, and what Dr. Osborne and U of A have brought to, to, uh, to my business has been incredibly valuable. Well, and, and 
that's a partnership a land grant should be doing, especially when you're you know doing the kind of things that you're doing in the state. I love to hear it. I'm about I mean like we can track uh, our family early 1800s to Arkansas, long before that. But I mean we're eight nine generations in too. So I like to see an Arkansas boy do it. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you're you're one of those. It's pretty cool. My son just. He, uh, he's going to honors engineering program at U of A, and so I'm really proud of him. It's an amazing program, and um, you know it's a family business. And that's one reason why I think about my my perspective has changed a little bit from transactional, and who knows what the future holds. Um, but when I see my daughter, who's now going to high school, she's going to go to Harbor. She's labeling boxes, and my son's working on the packaging line. It feels really, really good to be a part of that family business, and that they get to see it. So uh, it's a, it's a, um, I've lived in a lot of areas in the country, Miami Beach, San Diego, Boulder, and Amarillo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say this area right now is truly special. It is. And, and it does a great job of kind of incubating this kind of environment. Oh, yeah. For people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're, we're coming about to the close here, but let me just say this what what did I not ask that I should have that you think is important to understand mm-hmm. um, about the business you know about the things that maybe would be surprising to people but what what did I not ask um and again I, I first thank you for having me I love talking about this I think toward now I'm on the back nine of my life you know my what I really hope to do is uh, and that's why I like to teach at you too in, in that classes you know, any of my students, they're all bright enough to be able to read a book on entrepreneurship. So what we're going to talk about is the experience, the, how the scars, how to avoid the scars, how to recognize opportunities. One of the things I try to teach them also is, man, this is hard. This is really, really hard. You can't have, and if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you can't have one foot in and one foot out. You're in. You're in. Um, and not only are you in, your family's in. Everybody is in. Um, and so one question you have to ask is, is it worth it? And I can tell you there's probably 797 times I'm like, what the heck am I doing? You know, man, I love working in the corporate environment and having it sounded so much easier. But I can tell you right now, after all the hard stuff, after all the pain, after scars, after being 29 minutes away from going bankrupt, uh, it's absolutely worth it. Because in an entrepreneurial setting, you get to do something that's never been done. And that's what we're doing. Well, and several of us are the benefactors of that. And now I'm drinking a Scarlet Letter, or I soon I hope to this uh, to try this uh, this new cocktail that you have. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Because I don't like mixing cocktails. So I like to just, it'd be great to pour it out and have it ready to go. Right? All you need is ice. Oh, that's well. It. That's what I'm all about. <laughs> gotta, gotta, you gotta uh, get rid of all those steps that don't have, you know, non-value-added steps, which ice is non-value-added. So it's or we're, we're streamlining uh, your drinking. Experience. Oh, there you go. There it is. It's a, it's a lean it's process. A lean process. It's a lean six sigma <laughs> process where you're doing. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. I, I, I know you're busy. I've been there. I know, you know, you're, you're. You've got production to do, and you want to be there with your team. And so, for you to take time 
uh, to come and share it with us. I think it's important. And I think it's important for other people, other people to hear and be encouraged that, you know, with some preparation, working hard and, and uh, focusing on some foundational things, some core things, we'll yeah. say, um, then you can you can end up uh, uh, being successful. So thank you again. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, I, I, this is very important to me to do stuff like this. Um, uh, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. So I, if again, I mean, I'm, I'm not hard to get a hold of. Shoot me an email, jesse at fortbeer.com. If you want to learn more, you want to talk to me about it, you have questions, you'll find that I'm pretty much an open book. And Rich, I appreciate your partnership and what you're doing. And um, thank you very much for having me. Well, I enjoyed a lot. So, all right. So that concludes uh, this podcast. I didn't think this wouldn't be one that was very tough to sell people. Why it's important <laughs> for operations managers to uh, uh, to know a lot about beer. And so now you know more. <laughs> but uh, anyway, join us for the next uh, podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you go, if you enjoyed today's conversations, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on? Our goal is education and helping people improve their professional skills and knowledge to advance in their careers, and positive reviews help others learn about our programs. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.